Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. During the last six months, the words, I can't breathe, have been a call for help by millions of patients with COVID-19. These words have also been a call for help by numerous black men, victims of police brutality. Men such as George Floyd, who uttered these words as he was being murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. COVID-19 and police brutality have once again shined the light on an old and deep-rooted problem, systemic racism. Race is not a biological category that naturally produces health disparities because of genetic differences. Race is a political category that has staggering biological consequences because of the impact of social inequality on people's health. Dorothy E. Roberts. Today's episode of the podcast will focus on racism in healthcare. We will approach a difficult conversation, yet one that as clinicians we must have. Black Lives Matter, and we all should be doing a lot more to help save them. Our guest today is Dr. Gregory R. Johnson. Dr. Johnson is Chief Medical Officer of Hospital Medicine for Sound Physicians. Sound is a national multi-specialty practice with a focus on the acute care space. In his role as CMO for Hospital Medicine, he has clinical leadership responsibility for over 200 hospital medicine programs and thousands of clinicians that care for millions of patients every year. Dr. Johnson is a graduate of Dartmouth College and the McGovern School of Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. He completed a dual residency program in internal medicine and family practice at the Ochsner Clinic in New Orleans. He has practiced hospital medicine his entire career. Dr. Johnson has had multiple leadership roles throughout his career at the local, state, and national level. He has served as president of the Houston chapters of the Society of Hospital Medicine and Harris County Academy of Family Physicians, chair of the Texas Medical Association's Young Physicians Section, and a member of the Society of Hospital Medicine's Public Policy Committee. He has served as clinical faculty for the Texas Tech University School of Medicine, as well as his alma mater. He currently serves as treasurer of the Texas Medical Association Foundation. Dr. Johnson is a thought leader within his field and a champion for diversity, inclusion, and belonging within medicine. He is also a dear friend and a phenomenal pandemic battle buddy. Greg, welcome to Critical Matters. Thanks for having me, Sergio. I'm happy to be here. So I think today we we take a little bit of a departure from our usual topics in Critical Matters, although a lot of what we're going to talk is tremendously relevant clinically to our patients, but it's also a difficult conversation that I think that we must be having on a much more frequently basis. So I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to sit with me and uh, and help us with this conversation. And uh, I asked the, the audience, I mean, to, to, to listen attentively because I think there's a lot of things that obviously are very important for us to discuss today in, in light of not only what's been happening over the last couple of weeks with police brutality, with COVID-19, but in reality for what's been happening for decades and centuries in our country and as clinicians, I think we have a responsibility to do what, the best we can to, to impact the patient, the, our patients' lives and the lives of people that we work with. So Greg, maybe we should start with a, a very simple question, which I, which I think is one that sometimes people struggle with, with answering, which is, what is race? 
Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question and uh, a tremendous challenge, particularly when we're discussing not only racism, but racial disparities. And I think it is the, it's the identification either by us as clinicians or certainly um, by our patients of belonging to a very specific ethnic group. Um, now, I know most people say that we all belong to the human race and that's absolutely the case. Uh, but I think that we have historically in this country spent a lot of time making definitions of race based on skin color and uh, or, or a country of background. And so I think that's been a significant issue um, that absolutely contributes to the discussion and um, is really where things begin. And I think it's very interesting because from a medical perspective, I think this uh, bias that we have, like you said, in terms of basing things on skin color, country of origin, has really led people to confuse genotypes with phenotypes. And when we talk of human race, 99.9 .9 of our genes are the same, no matter how you look externally. Yet a lot of our medical reasoning and medical decision making might be biased by things that are based on the phenotype. No, that's absolutely the case. And I think that a lot of the evidence that uh, goes, that's been produced in reports like the uh, Institute of Medicine's Unequal Care really helps to underscore that, um, that there is uh, a difference and ultimately a difference in terms of how, uh, how our patients receive care. Um, and it's simply based on that, uh, again, that phenotype um, that's, that's primarily based on skin color. So you mentioned two two terms that I also wanted to to dive a little bit deeper in terms of definition. You you mentioned racism and you mentioned systemic racism. Could you tell us what what we what, what we understand by racism? Well, I think racism just from a basic definition is just discrimination, prejudice, antagonism that's directed against a person or people um, based on their membership in terms of a specific ethnic group. Um, and it's typically for those who are uh, from marginalized groups or certainly those groups that are in the minority. Um, systemic racism is really, or I think in many instances also described as institutional racism uh, is really the structure, the processes, the, the laws uh, <clears throat> and any other systems that help to reinforce that prejudice and that antagonism. And so I, I think those are the, the differentiation points in between just global racism and then systemic or institutional racism. And I think it's, it's also important to, to point out, Greg, which I think is part of the discussion that we're having today and, and part of the discussions that we've had uh, offline multiple times in the last several weeks is that uh, many, many of our colleagues don't consider themselves, themselves racist because they obviously do not exhibit hatred towards people of other races, yet complicitly, maybe in silent, we participate in a system that is systematically treating people in a racist way, or we might have behaviors that might be racist based on implicit bias that have been given down to us by society and by generations of, of, of education or lack of education. Can you comment a little bit on that? No, I, I think certainly from my personal perspective, you, what you stated is, I, I hope the dominant 
case, which is that in many instances, there have been either societal reinforcement or educational reinforcement that creates bias that, you know, that, that ends up being a longstanding issue for uh, all of us, uh, whether it's, um, it's black individuals to black individuals or non-black individuals to, uh, <clears throat> to black individuals. And again, I, I'm highlighting black versus non-black, but I think it can apply certainly to any other ethnic group. Um, and that, that's the challenge for us to accept is that there's been a lot of reinforcement that's gone on through the years um, that leads into bias and that bias you know, is leads to beliefs, and those beliefs end up in ultimately result in how people are treated. Um, and we're talking certainly about treatment from a medical standpoint, but we're also just talking about treatment in terms of non-medical, in terms of just how people are treated, you know, in general society. Absolutely, and I think we're going to dive into different topics, and hopefully, what I what I what I intend would be the, the result of this is that the listeners can reflect at the end of this podcast and really recognize how their actions or lack of actions contribute to the perpetuation of racism in healthcare and what are the steps that we need to take at the end to really change this, this trajectory. So maybe we can talk a, a lot of what we've been talking for the last several weeks. I mean, at a professional level, at our at our at our, at our calls, uh, Greg has related to COVID nineteen, and I think it might be a great place to start exploring racial disparities. When this whole pandemic started, I noticed a very two two very different uh, interesting uh, dynamics. On one hand, from a clinician standpoint, we were very interested in identifying. Uh, risk factors for people developing COVID, developing severe forms of COVID. And very quickly, people started talking about age, people started talking about uh, comorbid conditions such as heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, uh, immunosuppression. From a public perspective, also it seemed that they were very interested in identifying these risk factors. But what I found was talking with friends and people in the public is it's almost like there was a a need because of fear to make sure that the people who get really bad COVID are not like me. They have problems, they have other issues that put them at a higher risk. And that seems to be a very interesting narrative, but we definitely have worked on identifying these risk factors. And there's a big risk factor that I didn't mention, which is race. And I think as the pandemic progressed, we recognize that it's around the world, but specifically in the United States, uh, being a black, a male or, or female or being Hispanic were very, very high risk factors. And we started talking about racial disparities in COVID-19 and the risk factor of race. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, Greg, in the general context? Well, yes, yeah, Sergio. I think when we were fairly early in the pandemic, you're right. Everybody was listing the number of risk factors. We were discussing older age, male sex, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, any concomitant cardiovascular issues. But then when you started looking at the reports that were coming out from different locations, so Illinois, African-Americans are 14% of the population. And certainly early on in the pandemic, what was noted was that they were, that African-Americans were 40% of the overall fatalities related to COVID. 
for Native Americans in Arizona, reports were coming out that, that, that Native Americans were only about j just short of 5% of the overall population, but in excess of 16% of the fatalities. And if you look at the most recent MMWRs now, we're talking about the Latin Latinx population, which the, the overall mortality associated with that is 24.4%. And yet, in terms of the overall share of the population, it's closer to around 13% um, based on some of the reports. And so, you know, there have been a number of articles that have really highlighted that as a particular concern because, again, it's it's really talking, speaking to the fact that there is an increased amount of, uh, in fact, I'll quote this article from James Henry and uh, David Lighton um, that really underscored it's the distribution of suffering during the pandemic. And I think that's something that um, as an independent risk factor and recognizing that there's a higher level of mortality, not just morbidity, but mortality related to it, it, it was certainly um, disturbing. And that has continued as additional reports have, have come out about patients that are not only being diagnosed with COVID-19, but also that are dying from it. Yeah. And I think that obviously begs the question, why is it that African-American and Hispanic patients are at higher risk, not only of having COVID, but of having the severe forms of COVID? And I think that as we explore this question, Greg, maybe we can start by some myth busting, which I think is very commonly a present in the in the narrative of medicine in general, but also I think I've heard within COVID-19. And uh, one of them that I think is very prevalent uh, in our medical education is biology. Can you uh, talk a little bit, I mean, are, are, are their lungs different? Is that why they get worse COVID-19? No, I, I, I think, you know, when we're talking about myth busting, a lot of what's been done historically in this country uh, has been about getting to the point that you said, us versus them in terms of um, what is going on and why black patients, uh, Latinx patients would be treated uh, differently. And the answer obviously to your question is no, um, we're not seeing any differences with respect to um, uh, what's going on with lungs or heart disease. Obviously there is an increased prevalence of heart disease uh, of diabetes in the in the Black and Latinx communities uh, that have been highlighted. And the question I think that's related to COVID is which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Um, it, are we, and it have historic inequities in terms of addressing those conditions contributed to the increased prevalence of COVID-19 um, and the increased effects of COVID-19 in these populations? But if you look at throughout everything that has gone on uh, historically, no, we're, we're not seeing this. There may be some issues that are related to socioeconomics, but again, looking at a variety of different reports and we don't have enough with respect to COVID, socioeconomic differences don't seem to bear out why there are such pronounced differences uh, in the Black and Hispanic communities specifically with COVID-19. And I think that taking a a leap at tangentially, this is something that has also been explored in uh, in maternal fetal deaths. And uh, black women, regardless of socioeconomic status, have a higher risk 
of having maternal fetal complications at delivery. And uh, again, that's not explained just by socioeconomics, which is something that I think also, like you said, is being explored in, in COVID. Well, so, and, so, and I'm sorry, Sergio, I really want to underscore that particular point because even, and I'll refer frequently back to um, the Institute of Medicine's uh, unequal um, care uh, report that's actually a book, but there is a very specific citation in there that, and this is from 20 years ago, and if you go back 40 years, it's the same information, is that when you look at the majority of studies and they control for socioeconomic status, there's still disparities with respect to care. And so that, that's got to be in the back of, that's got to be addressed in up front for all the listeners in terms of saying, if we're making that assumption, it's not a correct assumption. We already have a confirmation that, you know, that, that that's not, that, that doesn't explain everything. And I think it's important because two things that I think are, are, are very relevant that I think a lot of clinicians sometimes overlook is that biology does not explain the, the difference in outcomes and socioeconomics does not explain all the difference in outcomes either. And it's, I think it's the result, and we'll talk more about specific examples of basically a system that has a systematically over time been biased against people of certain races, causing a lot of these problems. And I, and I think, like you said, we have to recognize that as clinicians because it is a risk factor that's no different than hypertension, than uh, diabetes, and the ones that we mentioned earlier. Now, the other thing that I've also read on a lot of the COVID papers in terms of another uh, incorrect assumption is uh, the fact of racial stereotypes about behavioral patterns, where people think that because certain groups uh, or certain ethnic groups behave differently, they might be at a higher risk for COVID. But I think that that fails to maybe link that uh, social distancing might be a privilege, working from, uh, from home might be a privilege. And I think especially in some of our uh, here in Texas and some of our Hispanic communities, our, our, our Latino ex uh, communities, we've seen that. Uh, can you comment on that a little bit, uh, Greg? Well, I, I think you're, you're right. Like when you're thinking about things that are related to healthcare, but are other social determinants of health, um, you know, whether we're talking about housing and housing distribution, well, uh, you know, you look at the data that like you, you discussed social distancing and the ability to have access to masks. Well, that's a tremendous issue when you're thinking, considering like the homeless and the fact that um, there is a significant portion of the population that's certainly black or African-American that is homeless and therefore doesn't have a, a access to that information, the ability to isolate from uh, others, have masks um, or to um, you know shelter in place because there is no place to shelter. When you're thinking, considering issues about um, interfacing with schools and understanding that there is a tremendous documented difference in terms of access to things like Wi-Fi and the internet for many black uh, populations, and, and therefore that's going to have material effect on people's ability to access um, from access schools. So. I, I think when we're considering what you're discussing, and, and maybe it's a tangential point or direct, but you know these are all again additional factors in terms of social determinants of health that include ethnicity and race 
that have to be considered in terms of how we're addressing our patients. And I think that you mentioned that what comes before the chicken or the egg, what we look at some of the risk factors in terms of diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, clearly more common in black males and more prevalent in, I wish I should say, in black males. And the assumption I think has always been that there might be some genetic predispositions, but the reality is that the reason why they're probably more prevalent has to do with access to care. And that is independent a lot of times because of things that have been embedded in the system for for decades now of socioeconomic status and really talks to basically racism and healthcare at a systemic level in a much broader context. So maybe we can kind of explore that by looking at some of the issues that I think are, 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 are very relevant and that I think have an historical context also in terms of impact of racism on access to healthcare beyond socioeconomics. And I would like to start with trust. Could you talk a little bit to that in terms of um, how that impacts access to care for black communities? Well, I, I think that there was, there's interesting that there's a recent Pew study that came out that actually discussed that very specific issue. Um, and uh, very specifically that black Americans in general are skeptical of medical misconduct. And there is a lot of historical basis with respect to that. If you look at um, anybody who wants to, to look this up can certainly go to the CDC's website or uh, other known resources, but you, you look at experiments like the Tuskegee um, syphilis experiments where black patients were enrolled in a study to look at latent syphilis. And then once penicillin became available as a treatment, the patients were weren't given that treatment, and you know, you know, basic things that you would say, hey, look, what medicine and healthcare is supposed to be doing is you know helping to treat and uh, relieve people from disease, and looking at insta uh, instances such as that, the instances such as what's happened with Henrietta Lacks and uh, what occurred in terms of herb cells being. Uh, taken, cultured, um, and uh, uh, and you know essentially rolled out as uh, part of additional medical research without her uh, individual consent. These are part of the historical context, and even if people don't know the details, people hear the stories that are associated with those, and then have a fundamental concern about what's going on in, in terms of whether or not they're going to receive healthcare. Another instance that I, I know when I read it, I, I was, you know, my mind was blown, but again, it comes from the Institute of Medicine report. And again, the case of bilateral orchiectomy and amputation, and noting that, again, controlling for their same peers, black patients undergo rates of 2.4 to 3.6 times greater bilateral orchiectomy and amputation than their their white peers of you know does do people know these studies no but you start hearing things on a very consistent basis and then yes there's going to be concerns about whether or not the system the healthcare system is specifically interested in treating you or using you for treatments for other individuals and so that's a, a fundamental component of people's trust of the healthcare system in general. Yeah. 
And I think the examples that you've mentioned, uh, I think for our listeners, I mean, we'll put links to all of these, but th these are not like uh, far and few between. There is a consistent thread of similar abuses to Black Americans over, over time. Um, there's also a lot written about Dr. J. Merriam Sims, who was considered the father, of, the father of gynecology in the 1800s, and the amount of experimentation without consent that he did on Black females. And there's, I mean, multiple stories and examples that I think, like Greg said, I mean, I, I think would predispose any community to mistrust of a medical system that historically has not had have their best interest at hand. Now, the other side of, 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 of the ad equation, I think you have the mistrust from the, from the Black patient, but I think that another thing that's worth talking about, Greg, is the implicit biases that many non-Black clinicians and maybe even some Black clinicians carry uh, as a basically, uh, this is a result of, of, of decades of systematic racism. And uh, I don't know if you, uh, it was just a very recent um, Twitter uh, post from a doctor that went viral. And I, I, I caught it because um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, put it in his feed and, and start commenting on it, on it. I don't know if you're aware of what I'm talking, but I'll share with you where the, the, the surgeon had to perform during COVID, a non-COVID patient, but a major surgery on a black patient. And uh, with limited access to families, obviously, and all the restrictions, this surgeon was, 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 was taken aback by the fact that the time that the family had to discuss the surgery with the surgeon was the family chose to make sure that they spent enough time or all the time detailing how high functional, how accomplished, and basically dignifying the patient as a real contributor to society, as opposed to asking the questions that most people would be asking regarding the surgery. And now DeGrasse Tyson immediately shared that when his 88-year-old father had a stroke, when he took a picture and of him giving, as a professor, giving a lecture, and people identified who it was, the treatment immediately changed. Can you talk a little bit about this, Greg? I'm not familiar with what you what you described, but I do think that I, I do think that what you're highlighting is the. I, and I, I, you'll have to forgive me, I'm going to take my own particular view of this, but I think this is really underscoring what people um, are attempting to express in stating Black Lives Matter, is to underscore that, you know, to a lot of African Americans, there has to be a justification to, to a healthcare professional and to the healthcare institution that this individual, despite the color of his or her skin, requires the best of your care. And in many instances, they are taking extra time to make sure that that it is justified so that that way um, it's either humanizing the patient um, and underscoring that this person has, has value and contributes to society. And I, I, it's 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 a painful aspect of in terms of thinking that individuals have to go forward and make that explanation and justify it, but in so many instances, 
there are conversations of, oh, the patient's going to refuse care. I don't want to be able to to give this. And again, what we what you, you know, so many reports have documented is that patients aren't receiving care in oncology patients. They're not receiving access to treatment. And the only disparity that we can identify is how the health the healthcare provider sees the patient. And so it, it's it's a tremendous problem. It's it's tremendously painful and difficult to address, but it is a, a component of things that we need to consider in terms of how we're again in terms of how we're treating all of our patients, but particularly our patients of color. And I think that the fact that as as a community or as, as a group, they feel the need to justify that illustrates how deep rooted these problems really are. And and I think that you mentioned it, uh, Greg, and I think it, it's a great uh, place to, to tell people, this is why uh, when people say all lives matter, they're missing the point. The point here is that there has been a systematic bias against certain races in healthcare and that we as clinicians must first recognize that and second, do what we can as well as our hands to change that. And I think that uh, even though you didn't know the specific case I was sharing, I, I think that that's exactly what, what I was trying to get get to. And it's obviously, again, these are not a far and in, 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 in apart incidences or exceptions. These are things that happen on a recurrent basis, correct? Correct. And we've had, we have it documented repeatedly over the last 40 to 60 years and that's only because that's when we started documenting it the other thing that i think we talked about trust and implicit biases but obviously a lot of people have talked about um the ideal situation is to have a race concordant or a even language concordant or belief concordant clinicians taking care of you because you're much more likely to connect with that person or that person might be able to understand a lot of uh, uh, your background and, and what are you, what, what's going through your mind. Can you talk a little bit about, again, how that is almost impossible uh, for, for most Black patients and why? Well, I mean, I, I think, so first off, to confirm your uh, original point is that, again, there have been studies to document that racial concordance between patient and provider has great, better patient participation in healthcare, higher satisfaction, and better adherence to treatment. Now, why is that impossible? Well, if you look at what is in place in terms of, and I'll speak because I know the, the information specifically about Black and African American, um, Black and African Americans is, again, certain percentage of the population, but the, there's only 5% of all physicians that are, um, that are, uh, that are African-American. And the spread of African-Americans across the country is tremendous. So it's incredible. It's, it, it is, um, it, I mean, based on how we are admitting folks, um, based on, you know, institutional biases, um, with respect to the advancement of um, African Americans and other ethnic minorities um, into healthcare, um, it's it's incredibly diff difficult. I won't say it's impossible, but as it stands today, it's not possible for 
uh, us to achieve racial concordance, despite the fact that the data shows that we can get better patient outcomes and certainly um, uh, <clears throat> uh, improvements in terms of uh, patients' overall adherence to, to their care. And I think it also speaks, I mean, as you were mentioning, the, the discordance that we have in terms of the percent of the population who is uh, a, a, who's black and the percent of the population in our country who are physicians. It also goes, I mean, to historical um, systematic uh, issues that have made it much more difficult to, for, for black um, um, young men and women to get to medical school historically. And uh, those are also part of this whole systemic racism. And I think it really is just shows that at all levels of society, there are hurdles that are much higher for, a, for black people to overcome. And that is something that has been like that for many years, despite, I mean, the effort of, of the civil rights movement and that is still pervasive and prevalent, right? No, it's absolutely the case. I, again, looking at my, I'll speak about my own experience in medical school, that, uh, you know, watching the number of Black and African American students, quite honestly, ethnic minority students that who were involved and in, in accepted into the medical school, and then the Hopwood decision came through that specifically excluded the consideration of one's uh, eth ethnic background. And for years afterwards, there was a dramatic reduction in terms of the the number of ethnic minority students that were led into my medical school. Um, as one example, that it's a barrier. And I, I, again, I, while people can look at this from a variety of different angles, the simple fact of the matter is that there are a lot of studies that indicate that not only diversity in the medical school class um, helps to lead, lead to greater cultural competence in the aggregate, but it also means that there's going to be improvements in terms of patient care and the commitment to make sure that uh, particularly ethnic communities that are higher risk, meaning ethnic uh, communities that are not only upper, uh, underrepresented, but also socioeconomically disadvantaged, that it is ethnic minority physicians who are much more likely to enter those communities and help to address the healthcare concerns of the, the, that patient population. Absolutely. And I think that we, we talked about the value of having race concordant physicians, but obviously there's a lot that we have to do to, to, to keep pushing that. But I think that it's something that as clinicians, we should be aware but I've also heard that some clinicians will say, well, I'm colorblind when I treat patients. But if race is a health healthcare risk factor for worse outcomes, whether it be COVID or just care in general, maybe as a clinician, I shouldn't be colorblind and I should really try to integrate into my decision-making into what I'm trying to ask and trying to support and, and trying to, to, to guide a, all these issues as well. Can you comment to that, Greg, please? Well, absolutely. I think, you know, first from just the humanity perspective, I think most patients know that it's very, I, I certainly say from as being a black man, I don't think it's not, it's, it's difficult for people to identify me as that. And I, quite frankly, am proud of it and, and I'm proud to be identified um, in that particular way. Um, I think 
we state in many instances that we're being colorblind, but if you look at the typical history and physical of our patients, almost everybody makes a comment about a patient's ethnic background in the in the initial portion as how they identify patients. And I think that if we are being true to our patients and doing the best we can in terms of treating them, to understand that there are comp cultural competency issues that we want to address, there are risk factors that make a potential patients higher risk, and that we want to make sure that we are addressing those particular concerns. Um, all of those are incredibly important, but then again, just addressing somebody as a human being and saying, yes, I see you for who you are, is as important and as important in terms of helping patients to relax and, and understand that we as caregivers are interested in them holistically uh, is, you know, eliminates that the, the, the um, for me, it eliminates the perspective of, of discussing people as being colorblind. It's it's just try, it's a false reality. And I think that that at the end of the day, obviously, what we always try to do with any patient is to foster a connection and find things in common. And there's plenty. And I think that understanding also some of the things that patients suffer that we don't suffer, and having that true empathy and compassion, definitely, I mean, can make us better better clinicians and serve our patients better. One of the things that I, I wanted to talk a little bit about it also in terms of um, the impact on healthcare access is algorithms. And uh, I, I know that we talked about this offline not too long ago. And uh, I, I, I read, I mean, as prep for this, uh, for this podcast was reading in a very interesting article that talked about how a biased algorithm would actually uh, require um, a black patient to be significantly sicker than a white patient in order to receive a certain uh, care because a lot of the algorithm was based on how much they spend on care. And the reality is that on average, regardless of socioeconomic uh, status, the black patients have less access or, or get less treatments for, what, for, for many reasons. So that, that particular algorithm was extremely biased uh, against black patients, but you've also taught me that there are that algorithms can be a solution. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Well, yes, I think uh, so you could absolutely cite some of the issues that are also related to the algorithms and calculating GFR. Um, and they certainly have impact in terms of caring for patients. But one of the interesting things that, again, the Institute of Medicine report highlighted was that um, looking at other systems, uh, for instance, the, the VA system, um, that where uh, patient care is highly protocolized and understanding that in uh, certainly from the IOM's perspective and after the research that they've conducted, that actually instituting care protocols that ensure that patients do get consistent access and evaluation is potentially a way to address disparities. And uh, I, I know that uh, as a clinician, you know, I know uh, I've been as guilty of saying, oh, well, you know, these, you know, I don't want to practice cookbook medicine. And I certainly would never advocate for eliminating uh, clinical judgment. But I think that we also have to acknowledge that um, whether it's for sepsis uh, or for VTE prophylaxis or, or anything else that where there are 
commonly identified um, and consistently identified treatments that benefit patient care, those protocols are an important step in terms of helping to make sure that we as clinicians can mitigate potential disparities in care. Doesn't eliminate them, but I think the IOM has very clearly said that this would be a step in the right direction. The next thing I wanted to touch on, which is I think a, a, a recent, uh, not a recent development, I think it's an old development, but that has obviously been in our minds a lot more recently because of the events that we described at the introduction uh, relates to police brutality on black males. And uh, you had shared with me in a conversation prior to the podcast that uh, obviously a black male who stopped by the police is significantly higher chance of uh, dying than a non-black male stopped by the police, even for a regular traffic stop. So clearly, it is a healthcare risk factor for death, especially in young males. And I think as such, it's definitely something that we as clinicians have to absolutely be uh, uh, be involved with and in, in changing. And uh, uh, I just wanted to, to get your, your, your thoughts as we talk about this and maybe start by, by sharing, I mean, conversations that I've had with you and other friends in terms of our, of our sons who are teenagers who are driving and uh, obviously all parents worry about the car being wrecked at the minimum or the the the, the kid getting in an accident but you have other worries that a lot of, uh, of, uh, of people of white color like myself don't worry as much can we start there Greg yeah I, th I mean I think I always ground try and ground things in facts and I, I think if you you know strictly looking at what's been documented out there, uh, the um, morbidity and mortality weekly report that comes from the CDC identifies something very specific around legal intervention deaths, um, meaning death involving uh, a police officer uh, of any form. And if you look at this, non-Hispanic white males accounted not, <laughs> sorry, non-Hispanic black males had the highest rate, 2.8 times the rate of non-Hispanic white males. Almost so just, three times the rate of black males versus white males, almost three times the rate in terms of de deaths involving a police officer. And of those, a quarter of those were unarmed. And, and I think and, it, it, go ahead, sorry. I, I, no, it's okay. And I think when you and I are discussing this, and I think of areas that are a public health emergency, anytime I can hear that, you know, something that should be as simple as a traffic stop or another legal intervention, where somebody is three times increased likelihood of not not injury of death is got to be something, you know, it's got to be a klaxon for us as a profession to say, these are our patients. Irrespective of anything else that's going on, these are our patients and three times more likely to die from a specific intervention. Something's got to be done. And, you know, when I think what you and I were talking about was, you know, 
before I even knew this data, my conversations with my, my teenage sons was really focused on how do you do your best to mitigate the risk of death from a legal intervention? And I know that you, when you and I talked about it, you're like, this isn't a conversation I, I've ever had with my kids when they you know, got a driver's license. But I believe that's what you're talking about. And I know that, that, is, that it's, it's not a conversation that's comfortable for certainly me and having it with my kids and, and, and uh, making them any less scared about driving even when they're new drivers. But also understanding that this is something, and I get back to the the point that you were making before. This is this is a public health emergency that, um, and I don't think that's an overstatement. That I think that we've got to be able to address. Absolutely, and I think that <clears throat> that it's important for us also to, to recognize, in the same way, how it impacts our colleagues in healthcare. And, and I think one of the things that, that I, I want to talk with you about was what is the um, uh, racism that is still prevalent towards physicians and clinicians uh, in our practices today. And uh, this is something that we've talked a little bit um, offline, but I think uh, it, it speaks to, to what, what it means to be privileged, uh, what it means to have white privilege. Like people say, uh, apologists will say, well, I worked hard. And, and we always talk about this. We both have similar roles within our, uh, our organization. We both worked very hard to become good doctors. We both, both worked very hard to, to keep learning, to keep making a difference. Yet, I've never had to work hard because of the color of my skin or work harder because of the color of my skin. Yet, I, I know that a lot of my black colleagues have suffered indignities and difficulties just because of that. Could you speak to that a little bit, Greg? Yeah, I think it's, it, again, if you look at the history of medicine and the fact that um, there have been, there's clear documentation that um, specialty societies uh, geared to make sure uh, that um, ethnic minorities were excluded from medical staff. Um, there are obviously other issues that, that really uh, created um, concerns about the number of uh, whether or not uh, an ethnic minority, particularly black uh, individuals, were ever even let into medical schools. Um, and I, I think, you know, when we discuss privilege, I think, you know, as a component of the societal issues that we've discussed, there is a constant, uh, and, and I know some people have concerns about the word constant, but there is a constant issue um, that many of us have, feel that we have to address in terms of our uh, our belonging at the table because people question whether or not you were uh, let into medical school um, and whether or not you were qualified to be there. Um, I, I know I had a, a debate with uh, with somebody that said, yeah, you know, there were absolutely people that were in our medical school class that were, weren't qualified. And I know that my counter to that was these are individuals who are board certified past all three uh, steps and are board certified in their sp uh, and highly successful in their choice. How would you determine whether or not they were qualified or not? You weren't on the admissions committee. You have no visibility to that. And obviously they were able to succeed. Um, 
there is uh, still active um, issues of whether or not, um, you know, again, Institute of Medicine reports that black and Hispanic physicians have difficulty getting their patients access to subspecialists. There wasn't a why, but uh, why there, that's the case. But it's a question that we should be asking ourselves is, wh why would that be the case? Um, why, why would people be questioning whether or not those, you know, and I don't know if it's a question or not, there, there's more to be, to be garnered from those studies, but those are still active portions of practicing medicine as a black person in this country that we still have to address even in 2020. Um, and so uh, I think as we are, are considering, you know, our colleagues, now, some of this is recognizing that the experience in terms of getting to the point of being able to deliver care is, um, is quite commonly very different, irrespective of uh, those individuals' backgrounds. And it does highlight the issue that privilege isn't just, um, you know, uh, isn't also, is also not necessarily socioeconomically <laughs> derived. And, and I think another, uh, topic that I wanted to ask you about um, was that that relates to microaggressions in the workplace. And uh, a, I know that this is a, a term that has been also used in, in other areas where there's disc discrimination, be it gender, be it sexual orientation, which I think are all super important, but obviously they're not, it's not what we're talking about today. But could you uh, maybe ex uh, explore or go down that rabbit hole a little bit more for, for us, Greg? Yeah, I think, so again, defining microaggressions for some uh, that wouldn't necessarily know it, but microaggressions are considered everyday verbal, nonverbal, environmental slights, snubs, or insults. And they may be intentional, they may not be, um, but ultimately they communicate a level of hostility. And that definition comes from um, the UCLA Diversity and, and Faculty de de Development Department about diversity in the classroom. Um, but again, it's effectively uh, messaging, negative messaging that is going to um, marginalize groups. And some are, you know, some are conscious, some are unconscious. Um, and then there's just a lot of invalidations. Um, things like, I don't see you as black. Uh, you are not like them, you're different, are all types of microaggressions that absolutely convey, um, you know, issues that are um, certainly prevalent in terms of how we deal with each other as uh, clinical colleagues, but also carry forward in terms of how we uh, address our, our patients. Yeah, and I think it's very important because if you if you look at at human psychology at a at, from 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 a very basic perspective, we we tend to think that things that happen to us happen to us if they're positive because of something we did or because we are gifted or we're, we're very good at what we do. And if they're negative, it's the environment. If it happens to somebody else and it's negative, it's usually their fault. And then right. when we start expanding that to groups, right? We think that the group that is our group is much more diverse. It's We tend to humanize that group a lot more, but the group that is not our group, they're all the same. 
So those, I, I think, are, are assumptions or biases. When you tell somebody, I don't see you as black, is because you're making an assumption that all black people are the same, right? And yep. that is, that that is, I think, a, a remnant uh, of of decades and centuries of a racist behavior, basically. No, it's absolutely true. And I think that um, part of our challenge in terms of addressing what's going on in our, what's going on currently and what has been going on um, in our hospitals and our healthcare community is, is recognizing that, yeah, there may be contradictions and areas of concern that, you know, when we're discussing racial concordance in one sense, and, you know, that's a that it, you know, and one could make an argument. Oh well, that's treating all black people as if they're the same, versus the microaggression piece that that we just discussed. And I, I think nobody's saying that any of these conversations, solutions, um, or topics are easy to address. But the fundamental piece that we have to focus on is there is a significant difference of what's going on with our patients. It's based on skin color. And it is our obligation to do something about it. Yeah. And, and I think that one of our objectives was obviously to, to start this conversation, to, to shed light to something that is not new, but that we definitely, I mean, have to take care of as, as clinicians. And I think that uh, the recent developments obviously have made, uh, have amplified the volume for the need for, for us as clinicians to work on this with COVID, but also with uh, the, all the recent episodes of police brutality. But I, I would like to, to, to end, I mean, the conversation on racism in healthcare with a little bit of a positive note in terms of what can we do to move this forward? And uh, I would like to start with a couple of maybe just, I mean, if you could give us like a couple of pointers or, or your thoughts in terms of what can each one of our listeners uh, uh, do to move this forward, to make it better, first for our patients. Well, I, I think in terms of what we can do for our patients, uh, I think it's really spending some time uh, considering what interventions we can make to standardize care, certainly where it makes sense and certainly where the evidence supports that. Um, as I mentioned before, um, Institute of Medicine reports that maybe one of our initial approaches should be identifying protocols and making sure that we're consistently using them. I know for Sounds Hospital Medicine practice, one of the things that we are going to start doing um, very specifically is addressing um, how consistently order sets that are evidence-based are being utilized in order to treat our patients. Because one of the things that we know that if, if we have a strong belief that that level of consistency is going to diminish disparity, then it's something that we know that we can do. And quite honestly, we know we can track. What about things we can do, Greg, for our colleagues? I think one of the things that we it, that's probably important that we can do for our colleagues is, uh, I'd say it's twofold. The first of which is, um, you know, be, being willing to have the conversations that you and I have, right? It's being open to hearing things that make you uncomfortable um, with the understanding that the, the goal is to get you to understand better. I think more formally, looking for opportunities where you can get into unconscious bias training and um, be able to address that very specifically is a way that you can 
um, very specifically um, learn how to um, better interact with your, your colleagues of color. And finally, what about what are things that we can do for society? And I think that this obviously is going to center more around decreasing police brutality. So I, I know that is a huge reach for everybody. I personally like to go where the evidence is. And uh, the eight can't wait campaign has been something where, again, it's evidence that shows that by uh, police departments taking on these eight specific revisions of their interventions has dramatically decreased the mortality associated with legal interventions. Um, and there's a, a website, Eight Can't Wait, um, where people can read what the interventions are and how they can make changes in their local community. So we'll definitely link uh, that website to the show notes so people can take take a look and, like you said, I mean, be proponents in their in their own communities of uh, of this campaign that, like you said, is evidence based. So this obviously is a conversation that I probably had should have had many many years ago with one of with one of my my colleagues. But it, they say that the best time to plant the tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. So I'm super thankful, Greg, that that you're willing to take the time uh, to talk with me about this and educate not only myself but our audience about something that I think is extremely important for us as clinicians and as and a society. But before I left you leave you off the hook, I wanted to ask you uh, some closing questions that are unrelated to the topic, uh, or, or not necessarily related to the topic that we always ask our guests to try to tap into their wisdom and knowledge. Would that be okay? Sure. So the first question relates to books. And I wanted to know if there are any books that have influenced you the most or books that you have gifted most often to others. Um, well, in regard to this topic, um, absolutely the, uh, the Institute of Medicine's uh, Unequal Treatment Report, which is a book has influenced me the most. Um, the other book that I have certainly suggested is Just Medicine, uh, Just Medicine by um, Dana Matthew. It's another book that uh, I, I'm actually in the midst of reading now, but I think it's really focused on not only identifying disparities, but helping to provide solutions on how to uh, address them uh, and improve healthcare um, with respect to um, race and ethnicity in this country. Excellent. The second question relates to what do you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe or at least behave like they don't believe? I think that I, I what I certainly about this topic, I believe that most of us probably are racist and we either joke or accept it. And we don't recognize that we've been taught to be that way um, either by society, our families or both. And I think that acknowledging that and addressing it and I'm, I, again, I'm speaking about myself as well, is an opportunity for us to connect better with each other as human beings um, and ultimately for us to, um, uh, in terms of acknowledging it, addressing it, and then learning our way out of it to become anti-racist is um, an incredibly important, um, um, at least personal belief of mine. Yeah, and I think that it, it, it speaks also to, to something that we have talked about before, which is 
it's not enough for people to say I'm not racist because that, like you said, if we really are honest to ourselves, we probably all had racist at attitudes towards different races or different people. But I think it's about as clinicians becoming anti-racist and really changing the trajectory of these healthcare disparities. And also, I mean, at a society level, just, I mean, doing what's right for people based on what we really believe. The last question, uh, Greg, relates to what would you want every uh, intensivist who's listening to us right now to know? Could be a quote, a fact, or just a comment. Oh, you know, you prepared me for this before, and it's a, it's a I, I think it's a tremendously challenging <laughs> question to be able to go out to this audience. But I think the the biggest thing that I want to to know is that I, I is that first and foremost, I'm aware that our my intensivist colleagues, you included, um, have are uh, the tip of the spear with respect to addressing what's going on with COVID and um, I, my um, my thoughts, my prayers, and my hopes in terms of your own individual well-being. Um, you know, we, uh, I, I can't express my own gratitude and just my own concern for everybody's uh, well-being because I know that we're all, everybody who is seeing patients and delivering care is is at risk. But I think that um, you know the the other component is to to really underscore that. Um, you know, medicine is complicated, medicine is difficult. None of these problems are new and none of these problems uh, are gonna be solved overnight. But I think that everybody can take an individual step towards helping to address healthcare disparities because ultimately it is our commitment as a profession to make sure that all patients receive the best care and to underscore that first we do no harm and if we can find very specific ways, not only from police brutality, but in terms of addressing a lot of these uh, disparities, then we will be materially reducing the harm that many of our patients are receiving from the healthcare system. And I think that's a perfect place uh, to stop. Greg, once again, I really appreciate your time uh, and your willingness to talk about this topic, but also share your expertise and, and your thoughts and uh, hope to have you back on the podcast to talk about maybe other topics or this topic again. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sergio. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound critical care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.